you have your Bibles with you, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 26 as we continue our study in 1 Samuel chapter 26. We've been studying the life of David. In the last chapter, in chapter 25, we saw the death of Samuel the prophet and we saw an encounter that David had with a man named Nabal. And we talked about how David had protected Nabal's uh, shepherds. He protected his, his sheep out in the field, kept people away from stealing from them. And David had not stolen or taken anything from Nabal or from his flock. And when it came time to shear the sheep and basically when, when payday came, when it was time for Nabal to get paid as he would sell the wool from the sheep, David sent some messengers to Nabal and he said, hey, can you guys now reimburse us for the protection that we provided for you? And it wasn't extortion. It was common in that day when somebody had to protect the shepherds and the flocks. Otherwise, otherwise robbers would come in and steal from them. So as David sends his men to Nabal and says, hey, listen, you know, we've helped you all this time. Now you're getting paid. Will you share that with us? Will you provide for us some food, some, some supplies, some things that we need? Remember Nabal's response? Nabal said, who's David? Who are you? You're just, and he, and he called him a runaway slave, basically. He said, you're just one of Saul's slaves that has run away. You're, 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 you're basically nobody. And word got back to David, and David wasn't very happy about that. As a matter of fact, he was extremely angry about it. And he was on his way to actually kill Nabal and Nabal's entire household and his entire family, all of the male people that worked for Nabal. David's heart was, was coming after them, and his pride was hurt. Who was David? No one's going to tell me who was David. I'm going to show you who David is. That was his attitude. Let me show you who David is. Well, Nabal's men came back to Abigail, who was Nabal's wife, and they said, listen, David's right. He did protect us out there. He did take care of us. He didn't steal from us. We really do owe him something. And Abigail, real, and, and they, I, I think they even said, listen, he's, he's not going to take this lying down. He's not the kind of guy that's just going to walk away from Nabal. He doesn't really care how much money Nabal has. And Abigail comes to meet David, and she comes out to him as David's on his way to kill Nabal. And she, brought, she came in humility, and she brought some gifts to Nabal, some food for all his men. And, and remember what she did? She reminded him of who he was in the Lord. She reminded hey, David, the, the kingdom is coming. You're going to be the next king of Israel. So she knew that, which meant he knew that as well. He just wasn't willing to part with his goods. And she gave, and, and she gave him the food. She, gave him, you know, she, she came with this presence of humility towards him. And she turned all this stuff over to him, and she reminds him what God has in store for him. And he said, David, you really don't want Nabal's blood on your hands. You really don't want to do that. Remember last chapter, you did so good with King Saul. You had a chance to kill him and you didn't. And you really don't want to do this. And, and David realized that he was wrong. And so he decided to turn back. And what happened? Ten days later, Nabal died. David took Abigail as his wife. He was so impressed with her, probably beauty, but also I think it was her wisdom that she had to come out to him. He, he takes her as his wife. And tonight we're going to see that as David is going to be continued to be pursued by Saul. And you might think, wait a minute, I thought, I thought that was all taken care of back, back a chapter ago. I thought in chapter 24, Saul and David had it all out. Remember what happened in 24? Saul was seeking to kill David. Uh, remember, what, remember David, Saul went into the cave. He had to go to the bathroom. David and his men were hiding in the cave. David got close enough to Saul's robe and cut off a corner. And we talked about how that cutting off of the corner was symbolic of the kingdom of Israel being torn away from Saul. As Saul's leaving, David calls out to him and says, look, I had a chance to kill you and I didn't. And it's a reminder of, of David saying, saying, listen, I'm not going to remove you from the throne that God has placed you on. I'm not going to come against you. God has, God has anointed you in this position, and I'm not going to be the one to take you out, even though I had the opportunity to do so. And many of us, we talked about, you know, I mean, if somebody was trying to kill you, wouldn't you be justified in taking them out before they got to you? 
But David said, no, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to dethrone King Saul. When God is ready for him to be off the throne, then God will remove him from the throne. Well, tonight we're going to see another encounter between David and King Saul. If you'll follow along with me in chapter 26, verse 1. Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding in the hill of Halakah, opposite Jeshimon? Then Saul arose, and he went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him, to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped in the hill of Hakalah, which is opposite Jeshimon, by the road. David's been in this area before. These are the same people that betrayed David before back in chapter 23. They go to the king and say, King, we know where David's at. We know where he's at. You can find him here. Now, I scratch my head and say, why are you there, David? You know you can't trust those people. And the Bible doesn't really tell us why he's there. But what we have to go on is what we have. And I think it's interesting. Saul arose and he went down after David. Remember, David, Saul had made a promise to David that he was going to leave him alone. He realized that David would be the next king of Israel. He declared that to David. And, he's, and, he, and now here comes Saul chasing David. But look what he has. He has 3,000 chosen men. How many men did David have? 600 is what we're told, what the scripture tells us. That's not very good odds for a battle, is it? That's not very good odds at all. Not only does he have 3,000 men, there are 3,000 chosen men, which means he picked the best warriors possible. He wasn't going to lose. He wasn't going to do this. He wasn't going to, he wasn't going to be outmanned. He wasn't going to be beaten on skill. David, what are you going to do this time? I'm curious. How about you? Look at verse 3. But David stayed in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies, and he understood that Saul had indeed come. I think it's interesting that Saul is looking for David, but David knows right where Saul's at. All along the way, he always knows where Saul's at. Why? Because God's revealing it to him. And you can't, you've got to imagine, it's not hard to find 3,000 people moving through the desert, is it? You just look around for the cloud of dust, and that's where they're going to be. That's a lot of people to move from place to place. David also wasn't stupid. He also believed that, I also know that he doesn't, I believe that he doesn't, didn't think that he could trust Saul either. So he had to keep a pretty good eye on where King Saul was. Because after all, he tried to kill him by now, what, four, five, six times or so? We knew that he was coming after him. He's not just going to, all right, he, he repented this time. I trust you, Saul. Go on, go on back home and I don't have to worry about you anymore. That's not the case at all. And here it says that he understood that Saul had indeed come. David's smart. He sends out some spies, some reconnaissance mission. Let's send some guys. Maybe, maybe they're dressed in the clothing of that day. Let's go find out what's going on. Why is the army moving through the wilderness? Who are they looking for? What are they doing? What kind of mission are they on? Maybe David's just paranoid. Maybe he's just working. What, what, is he coming after me? Is there something else going on? What's going on? That's why he sent out the spies. He wanted to find out. He wanted some clarification before he passed the judgment. It's an important thing. He wanted to get clarification. What is Saul doing? And when it says, and he, and he understood that Saul had indeed come, that word for understood, it means he knows. Now he has the clarification that he needs that Saul is in fact coming to kill him. And I think that's important because sometimes we can look at what somebody's doing in life and we can think their motives are negative towards us. We can think their motives are coming after us. Maybe we think they're talking about us. Maybe they, th- we think, they think they're, they're attacking us in some way. But I think David's wise. He goes to get clarification for it. He finds out what's really going on. And we should do the same thing. 
before we rush to judgment just because we see a cloud of dust somewhere in our life where we think that they're coming to attack us. Why don't we send out some spies? Why don't we find out, send out some feelers, figure out what's going on before we all of a sudden start pointing fingers at what somebody's doing and, and accusing them of something when it might be that Saul was just moving through the area. Could have been, right? David finds out, and that's not the case at all. He's actually coming out to kill David. I believe that David thought the best of Saul. I believe that in his heart, being a man after God's own heart, I think he thought the best. And I think he was really hoping that Saul was just moving through the area. But then he finds out that's not the case. What about us? Do you think the best of people? Or do you think the worst of somebody? Right off the bat, what do you think when you see somebody, when you hear somebody's doing something, when somebody doesn't do what you think they should do? Do you think the worst of them or do you give them the benefit of the doubt? I think as Christians we should give the benefit of the doubt probably more than we really do. Maybe somebody didn't call you. Maybe they didn't reach out for you. Maybe they didn't do or act or or say what you thought they would say. And right away you put up a wall and you want to think badly or poorly about them. I think we need to get all the information before we make those decisions. And that's what David's doing in this case. And in David's case, he found out the information, the news, it was bad. He really is coming after to kill him. But he might have found out, just like we can find out in our life, when, some, when we think somebody's got it in for us, when we think somebody's coming after us, they might be. Or it might just be a misunderstanding on our part. Without the proper information, without gathering all the facts, we really can't make a decision. So let's be people who... Get the information before we make that decision to think the worst of somebody. Let's think the best of somebody until there's no other possible way, until we actually see what their true motives are. That's what David's doing. Now, what do you do if you find out someone's trying to harm you? They're speaking bad about you. They're talking behind your back. They're stealing from you. They're lying to you. They're, they're putting you down. What, what do you do if it's at work, if it's with friends, what, at school? What, what do you do? You do exactly what David does here. And we're going to see that David is going to go and he's going to confront them face to face. David's going to go reach out for Saul. He's going to go confront Saul. I want to talk to Saul personally about what's going on. You see, when that happens in our life, when somebody comes after us or they confront us or they say something about us, what's our first response? To talk about them, to say something about them, to tell them. And I think what our society is missing is a face-to-face confrontation. There's nothing wrong with me going to somebody and saying, hey, listen, I heard this about you. Is it true? I heard you said this about me. I heard you're doing this. Is it true? I don't know why, but for some reason we're afraid to talk to each other. Many of you know, and I'll refer to a, a story in my past. I was a police officer for many years before I came up here, became a pastor to start a church. One of the things I hated... The worst call ever is a neighbor dispute, a neighbor problem. The two neighbors can't get along and they're fighting over something. And the worst thing they can fight over is, and from time to time we would get these calls, is the dog is barking. The dog's barking. And they would call me and they would get on the radio and say, can you respond to this location because this neighbor's complaining that this neighbor's dog is barking too much. (laughs) What am I supposed to do as a police officer? So you go to the neighbor's house that made the complaint. And and usually it's an anonymous complaint because they don't want the neighbor to know they made the complaint, right? They just want you to go solve the problem. So you go to the neighbor's house that made the complaint. Why are you here? It's supposed to be anonymous. Well, I want to know if you've talked to your neighbor yet. Did you go over and... No, I wouldn't talk to them. Why? Go knock on their door and tell them. And here's what I used to do. 
I said, I'm going to go over to your neighbor's house, and I'm going to knock on the door, and I'm going to tell them that you called us and that your dog is bothering them, and that you would really like it if their dog, if their dog would be quiet. Oh, no, you can't do that. I said, oh, yeah, I am, because that's the problem. You're bothered by the dog. You won't, well, I don't want you to, them to know. Matter of fact, just leave. I don't, just don't worry about the dog. Okay, problem solved for me. But the point is, they're afraid to talk to one another. There's, a, there's one neighbor being offended by something going on in the other neighbor's life. And instead of knocking on the door, saying, listen, could you stop the dog from barking after 9 o'clock at night? Or can you stop the dog from, for, you know, instead of trying to solve the problem, what do they do? They call the police. They want to get us involved. They sue them civilly. They make all these complaints. They, they blow this huge situation into something that didn't need to be. David's not doing that. He's going to go talk to Saul. He's going to go face to face and say, Saul, what's going on? No fear for his life. Why? Because he knows it's in God's hands. He's going to go confront Saul. Look at verse 5. So David arose, and he came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay. And Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army, Saul's army, now Saul lay within the camp, and the people encamped all around him. Then David answered and said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, to Abishai, the son of Zariah, brother of Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I'll go down with you. Now let me get your attention. Here's what's going on. He takes some of his men. He goes to where Saul is, to where he knows they're camping. And again, he knows right where Saul is. Saul has no idea where David is. He goes to where he is, and here's what he sees. He sees King Saul. And he sees Abner, who's the commander of Saul's army, and he sees them surrounded by 3,000 men. Okay, now just picture what that looks like in your mind. Two guys in the middle, surrounded, I, I think of a circle, completely encircled by 3,000 men, and they're all asleep. They're all sound asleep. Here's what he sees. And he says to the guys that he brought with them, hey, let's go down there. Who's with me? And Abishai says, I'll go with you. The other guy, Himelech, says, uh-uh, I ain't going with you. That's like going out into the, I mean, that, they're, gonna, they're trying to kill you. They're gonna, if, if I'm with you, they're going to kill me. But I want you to notice David's leadership. What he says, a good leader says, who will go with me? Who will go with me? Meaning, I'm going, will you come with me? A bad leader or a dictator orders somebody to go. David could have sent his men down there to talk to King Saul. He could have sent his men before him. But no, David's a good leader. He's, I'm going. Who's coming with me? And what's that say about the character of Abishai that goes with him? I'm with you, David. In good times and bad, I'm with you. Abishai says, I'll go with you. Look at verse 7. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp, with his spear stuck in the ground by his head, and Abner the people, and the people lay all around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth. I won't have to strike him a second time. So as they come off of the mountain down into the, where the camp is, these people or these men are sleeping. They're just, can you just imagine tippy-toeing over everybody? Shh. 
And they're tippy toeing around. They're walking over this one. They're walking over that one. And I got to believe they slept in some sort of arrangement to try to protect, you know, where somebody would wake up if something was coming into the camp. And the language there, it means that like their wagon wheels or there was wheel marks. Or they, they literally slept in a circle around him, in, in what, around King Saul. And as they tiptoe through the camp, they come to where King Saul is and where Abner is. And there's his spear stuck in the ground by his head. There it is. That's the spear he threw at me back in the castle, remember? That's, in the palace. That, that's the spear that he threw at me a couple times and tried to kill me with. There, now I have the opportunity to kill him. And Abishai, look what Abishai says. God delivered him into your hands. God's delivered him, David. Now, therefore, please, please let me strike him. How cool it will be. I'll kill the king with his own spear. That's like even better than just killing the king. I'm going to do it with his own spear. Once again, David has the opportunity opportunity to kill the man that's attempting to kill him. But I want to ask you a question. If you've been with us before, you know that David's had this opportunity before. Is this an opportunity or is it a test? Is God giving David an opportunity to kill him or is God testing David in something? You see, sometimes God will test us more than once with the same opportunity. Just because there's an opportunity before you doesn't mean it's from God. After all, you could say, wait a minute, Rob, it's an opportunity. It's the second opportunity. It must be from God. After all, it's a little ironic that all the men are sleeping and nobody woke up, so therefore it must be from God. After all, Saul did break his promise, didn't he? I mean, Saul said he was going to let David live, so therefore it must be God. And Abishai even makes it easy for him. David, you don't have to do it. I'll do it. Blame it on me. You can say, no, don't do it. And as Abishai kills Saul. Just because a good or even reasonable opportunity lies before you does not mean it is the will of God. It might just be a test. It might just be a test. Just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean God wants you to do it. Did David have the right to kill Saul? Sure he did. Just because you have the same opportunity again because it's happening multiple times doesn't mean God wants you to take it. Just because it's logical or reasonable, it makes sense, it's better for my family, there's all kinds of justification for it, doesn't mean that God wants you to do it and wants you to take it. Here's what I want you to understand. Just because there's an opportunity before you, it is not necessarily from God. It might be a test that's trying to pull you away from what God has for you. If God calls you or ports you or pushes you in a direction in life, I will guarantee there will be other opportunities that come your way. Especially if it's going to be a powerful work in a ministry. Because there's Satan is going to come alongside and he's going to try to draw you away. If God were to call somebody to a mission field, don't you think that they'd get a job promotion or an offer or something like that? You better believe they would. If God calls you, maybe you do get a job promotion. You have the ability to move and buy a bigger house just because now your income is coming. It doesn't mean that God wants you to do that just because you have the ability. He might want you to stay and minister in the neighborhood you're in. That's why we need to be people who follow God, not follow opportunities. We need to be people who look at and say, God, what do you want me to do in this situation? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? Who do you want me to date? Where, who do you want me to marry? Who, do you, who, where? Those are the questions we need to settle with God one-on-one. Between him. I can't tell you the answer to those questions. That's where your conviction comes from spending time with God. God, what do I do in this situation? The problem is, 
the answer doesn't come right away like in a fortune cookie, does it? Sometimes we're forced to wait on God. And we have to wait and wait and wait and wait. I asked God what to do in this situation. He didn't tell me. What do I do now? You wait until he tells you. Well, I don't like waiting. Well, too bad. If you take that opportunity, you just might be walking out of the will of God for your life. And there is no worse place to be than outside of God's will in your life. So Abishai says, David, I'll kill him. I got it. I got this. I can do it once. I won't have to stab him twice. And look at verse 9. David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him. Or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. David says, no way, don't touch him. God's got this. I'm not going to interfere. God put him on the throne. God's going to have to take him off the throne. I'm not about to kill him just because there's an opportunity before me to do so. It wasn't like David David thought Saul was right in what he was doing. David knew Saul was sinning. He knew more than anyone that Saul was deeply in sin. But David knew that even a sinning Saul was still the anointed king over Israel. And he wasn't going to stand against him. Saul would not cease to be king over Israel until God changed it. He wasn't going to act on the opportunity. David would not stretch his hand out against the Lord's anointed. You see, David did something that we sometimes forget. Sometimes we don't do. David recognized the power and the sovereignty of God. David was on the run for many, many years, having the promise of being king over Israel. He was waiting for his position that God had promised him. He was waiting to take the throne over Israel. He was waiting and waiting and waiting. And not only was he waiting, he was now kicked out of his country. He was on the run, living in the wilderness. And now his life is being threatened over and over and over and over again. If there was justification for killing Saul that night, David had it. In all of our minds, we would say, sure, David, go ahead. It's you or him. But remember, David went there to confront a problem. He didn't go there to kill Saul. He wanted to talk to Saul. He got there and found everybody sleeping. I think he was just as surprised as we are when we read the story. I think he expected everybody, somebody to be awake, the to alert Saul was there, and he was planning on having a man-to-man, a face-to-face conversation with King Saul. That was his plan. But when he gets there, everybody's sleeping. And David recognizes God's power and God's sovereignty and says, I'm not going to interfere with God's plan. I'm not going to do it. But he's not going to leave without confronting Saul either. Now in his wisdom, look what he says at the end of verse 11. But please, take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let us go. So grab his spear, grab the jug of water that are laying there. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head and they got away. And no man saw or knew it or awoke, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. David realized that he was walking with the Lord and the Lord had caused this to happen. He realized this was miraculous. He realized it was abnormal. He realized that there was nobody standing guard. They were all asleep. And he goes in there to talk to Saul. Nobody wakes up. So he grabs the spear. He grabs a jug of water and they head on out. And they get here. 
Verse 13, now David went over to the other side and he stood on top of a hill afar off. Now he's out of their sight. They can't make out who it is. A great distance between, being between them. Verse 14, and David called out to the people and to Abner the son of Ner saying, do you not answer Abner? Do you not answer? David is confronting those people who are supposed to be guarding Saul. Abner is the, is the captain over Saul's army. So he's calling, aren't you going to answer me? As if he's been calling for hours. Aren't you going to answer me? And what do you think Abner's doing? He's waking up. He's rubbing his eyes. What? what, what? Who, who is this talking to us like that? Who, who is this guy? Aren't you going to talk to me? And Abner said, who are you? Who are you calling out to the king? Who do you think you are? Who are you? You can't talk to the king. We're going we're gonna to kill you. We don't, Abner didn't even know who he was. Who are you? Who are you talking to us that way? Look at verse 15. So David says to Abner, are you not a man? Oh, what do you think Abner says to that? He's boiling. Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your Lord the king? Abner's furious. For one of the people came in to destroy your Lord the king. This thing that you have done. It's not good, Abner. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die. Because you have not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. And now, see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was by his head. Now, notice the, notice the confronta- confrontation there. Abner, you were sleeping on the job. Why weren't you guarding the king? You should have been guarding the king. I'm sure Abner's blood was boiling. Who are you to accuse me? Who is this? And as David confronts him, are you not a man? Somebody came in to destroy the king and you were sleeping. Abner's just furious. And you can just imagine what his face looked like as he's getting madder and madder and madder as David's off in the distance just yelling these things. And all of a sudden, David holds up the spear. And he holds up the jug of water. And you can just imagine as Abner looks down at the ground. And Saul looks down at the ground. And Saul looks at Abner. Thinking, How did he get my... Who, who is this? How did he get my spear? How did he get my water? And Abner's, Abner's going, there's no answers here all of a sudden. Can you imagine what their faces look like? And then Saul realizes as this conversation has taken place. Saul realizes in verse 17, then Saul knew David's voice. Saul says, I recognize that voice. I recognize, I've heard that. Is that your voice, my son David? Is that you? Verse 17, David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O king. It is me, King Saul. And he said, why does my Lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done or what is evil in my hand? Notice the confrontation. While it's not face to face, it's man to man. While there's a distance separating them, he's going to the problem right before him. He's not just talking about it. He's not putting him down. He's not saying things about him on Facebook. He's not doing things like we do all the time. And we, you know, he's not venting to somebody else. He's going to where the problem lies. We need to get that in our heads. If you have a problem with somebody, go to that person that you have the problem with and seek to resolve it. Be man enough or woman enough or whatever you want to call it. Go handle it one on one. If you need to apologize, apologize. If you need to repent, repent. David is here one-on-one. He says, King, why are you chasing me? Why are you chasing me? What have I done? What evil is there in my hand? And he continues in verse 19. He says, Now therefore, please, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. So David says, King, I've got something to say to you. I've got something to say. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. 
But if it is the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. So now, do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea, as when one hunts a partridge in the mountain. So David says to Saul, he says, Listen, king, there's one of two things going on here. There's one of two things. Either number one, the Lord has stirred you up against me. The Lord has put it on your heart to come after me. The Lord has put on your heart to come attack me. The Lord has put it on your heart to destroy me. If that's the case, let's resolve this. Let's make an offering to the Lord. Let's make a sacrifice to the Lord. Let's put this to bed once and for all. Let's not let this continue brewing. I, I, I want. Do you see David's heart? I want to be right with God, is what he's saying. The Lord has stirred you up against me. If that's the case, let's do this offering before the Lord. He has a heart that says, I want to be right with God. But he said the second possibility... The second alternative and the reason that you're pursuing me and the reason that you're chasing me is this. The children of men have stirred you up against me. What does that mean? That means, King, you're listening to what everybody else is saying about me. You're not coming to confront me with the problem. You're listening to what the Hittites are saying. You're listening to what this group is saying. You're listening to what that group is saying. You're listening to what everybody else is saying about me. You're listening to what the Ziphites are saying. You're, you're not... You're, Saul, either the Lord's put this in your heart or you're listening to men. You're being stirred up by men. Now, I want to share something with you. That word for stirred up, I think it's interesting. It means to incite against, to mislead, or to entice away. Saul was being stirred up. He was being misled. He was being enticed away from what God had for him, from what he was supposed to be doing. What was he supposed to be doing? Leading Israel. He's supposed to be defending and being the, the, you know, taking care of the nation Israel. Instead, he's got 3,000 of his best man, men chasing one man. Why? Because his pride is, in, is affected. Because he, wants, he knows David's going to be the next king, and he thinks if I can wipe David out, maybe my son Jonathan can be king. Maybe my family. He realizes the kingdom is being torn away by God's sovereign plan, but he wants to stop it. And he thinks, I can destroy David, and that will solve that problem. And everybody he's listening to, all the counsel he's getting, is telling him the same thing. You've got to kill David. You've got to kill David. Haven't you heard the hit song? David has sl- Saul has slain his thousands. David has slain his tens of thousands. You've got to go after David. You've got to go after David. But I want you to notice David's real heart here. You see, David's come to the point, I believe, where he's saying, I've had, the, I've had enough of this. We're going to put this to bed once and for all. And look, he, he shares his heart. He says, for they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go, serve other gods. As he shares his heart struggle under Saul's relentless persecution, David shares what hurt him the most, that he, what, that he could no longer go to the house of God. That he's on the run. He's being kept away from the nation that he loved. From the people that were his. He can't be openly with the people of God. He's living, he's living his life after the Lord as he longed to. He, he can't live for God the way that he wants to. Because he's being pursued by Saul. You see, David didn't have the freedom to go into the tabernacle and worship. And that's what David was missing. That's, he's, he's tired of being on the run. And he comes to this confrontation basically going to say, I don't care what happens. I'm just going to let God do what God's going to do because I'm not going to happen. He says, these men that are telling you these things, they're actually driving me and telling me to go serve other gods. They're driving me away from the nation and the God that I love. You're doing this to me, Saul. 
the pressure of all this has tempted David to consider leaving the nation of Israel. He's actually thinking about just abandoning the nation. I don't care about the promise anymore. I can't take it anymore. But before he lets somebody drive him out, he's going to confront them one-on-one. And that's what he's doing in this passage. As he's confronting Saul, he's opening up his heart. He's listen, Saul, I want to worship God in the tabernacle, and I can't. I want to live among the people, among my people, the Israelites. But I'm being driven out of the very nation that I love so much, being driven away from the people I care, the people I've fought for, the people that I've defended. It's not going to happen, Saul. Why is this happening? Saul has been incited against David, but he has also been misled and enticed away from being king over Israel. He's wasted this time pursuing David. And I want to share something with you because I think this applies to us. I want you to notice something. As a believer, you should be working towards God's plan in your life. You should be living out God's plan. You should be walking, serving, and doing things for the Lord. You better believe there's going to be things that stir you up. They're going to stir you up. What kind of things stir you up? And here's what I want you to find out. Does the news stir you up? Does politics stir you up? What is it that really gets under your skin that just, just bubbles you up, that all of a sudden you can become passionate about something, where you, become, you can become angry just because you watched a, a political debate, or you become angry because you see something going on? You're being stirred up. You see, David said there's two ways you can be stirred up. You can be stirred up by men, or you can be stirred up by God. There's a difference. You see, when God stirs you up, he's going to give you the power to do something about what he's stirring you up about. When you're stirred up by men... All it's going to do is drag you away from what God has for you. Stirred up. Stirred up. So what is it that stirs you in your life? What is it that really gets under your skin? What are you passionate about? And here's, the, here, here's, the, here's what I want you to understand. Somebody might say, well, I'm, you know, save the whales. All right? Save the trees. Save whatever this thing. I'm, I'm upset because this is happening. It's stirring you up. I'm passionate about this all of a sudden. I want you to find out. Where's the passion coming from? Where's it coming from? Where's it, where, where, what is it that's moving you to be stirred up to fight for this cause that you're fighting for? Because if it's from God, it's your calling and you go for it 100%. But if it's from man, if it's from man, if you're being stirred up to fight for a cause from man, run. Because all it's going to do is pull you away from God. You see, man's going to stir you up by using your emotions. That's how they're going to stir you up. They're going, to, they're going to show you something and make you emotional about it and get you passionate for their cause. Maybe you'll see the little children on TV that are starving in, in Africa somewhere and you, they stir you emotionally. Why? So you'll do something about it. They're going to stir you up physically. They're going to stir you up physically. Maybe, maybe you've gone through cancer and now all of a sudden you're going to carry the fight for cancer or you're going to carry the fight for something or you're going to you're going to fight for these things those aren't wrong to fight for those things it's not wrong to feed the children it's not wrong to fight for cancer or or fight for those things that you're passionate about but here's what we need to find out what is it that's stirring me up because the word for stirred up means to be enticed away or to pull away or be drawn away from something if i am being stirred up from something i need to be stirred up spiritually for it not physically not emotionally it needs to be spiritual stirring that occurs on my heart A spiritual stirring will not go away. When they turn the TV off and you walk away, it won't go away. When you drive by the person on the corner that holds the sign, you go, should I give something? You feel bad for them and you throw a few dollars at them or give them a hamburger or something like that. or, Or you don't give them anything and you drive away and you don't feel bad about it. That's a physical or an emotional stirring. If you feel bad and you realize, man, I really felt like I should have done something, that's a that's a spiritual stirring. 
That's where God of the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. I want you to do something. I want you to move in that direction. So we as Christians have the obligation to ask ourselves, what is it that we're passionate about? Is that passion coming from the Lord? Or is that passion coming from men? Because I've watched something. I've been moved emotionally. I've been moved physically. Where, where is that coming from? You see, I believe a lot of lives, and I'm not going to say the word wasted, I'm going to say the word been misused, where people have been drawn away from what God has for them. And oftentimes, it's for a good purpose, but it's not God's purpose. And we need to make sure we're living out God's purpose for our life, not just a good purpose. Now, the other things that can stir you up are sin. Can't sin pull you away from God's plan? Sure it can. Sure it can. Things that sin, sinful things, sinful thoughts, those things, they can pull us away from God's plan, too. They can stir us up. And I want to question you, or I want to just remind you or ask you this, The next time you get stirred up on something, next time you feel like you're getting passionate about something, see where it's coming from. Where did did it start? Was I in the Word and got stirred up on something? Was I in prayer and got stirred up on something? Or was I I in the world? Or was I hearing from the world? Or was I hearing from people? Or what what is it? Where, Where did that stirring come from? And then I want you to wait. And I want you to pray about the stirring. And I want you to see where it leads to. Does it stay? Is it there night after night and day after day? Is it there month after month and time goes by? Or is it something that you only think about when your friends are talking about it? Or when somebody says, hey, this would be a good idea. Let's fight for this cause. You see, the cause might be worthwhile, but it might not be God's plan. Do you understand? As Christians, we need to be living and living the life that God's called us to live, not just fighting for a good cause. Let me put it to you one more way. Maybe the cause that you're fighting for could be a good cause, but God's called somebody else to fight for it, and you're standing in their position. You need to get out of the way so they can move into their ministry. You see, as the body of Christ, we all, God uses us to all work together to accomplish different things. So David approaches Saul, and he lays this out to him, and he says, They've driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord. Go, serve other gods. Don't let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek as a flea. Saul, I'm a flea. I'm nothing to you. I'm a nobody. As, one, as when one hunts a partridge in the mountains. That's kind of interesting. We don't really know what partridge hunting in the mountains of Israel was like. But I, I, one of the commentators I read described it. And he said it's like this. The partridge was a small gray bird and it would fly. And you would, it, would, it would much like a, you, it, would, it would hide in, uh, in grassy lands or in areas where it could hide. And you, you'd, you'd come on it and it would fly away. But it couldn't fly very far, so it would fly a short distance, then it would settle somewhere else. And as you approach it the second time, it would fly away, then it would settle again. And you approach it the third time, it would fly away and settle again. And after a period of time, after a few of those, the partridge became, wasn't a very strong bird, it became very tired. You could actually just walk up to it and hit it with the club, because it no longer had the ability to fly. And David said, that's the way I feel. David said, I feel like, you're, Saul, you're chasing me like a partridge. Every time I fly away, I run away. You come after me again. I don't have it in me anymore, Saul. I'm tired of it. And he lays it all out to Saul. And look at what Saul says to him in verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more. Because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. Do you believe him? No. Saul knows what to say. He knows the right words, but his actions certainly don't match up to his words. But notice what he says. He wrote his autobiography there. I've played the fool. I've played the fool. 
That's what I am. So that's what I am, David. I'm a fool. But my life was precious, so I'm going I'm to save you today. I played the fool. That's not how I want to be known at the end of my life. How about you? I played the fool. God gave me the throne of a kingdom, and I just played the fool. My life didn't matter. Verse 22, and David answered and said, Here's the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord. And let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Essentially, David said to Saul, may the Lord treat me the way I treated you. Could you say that about your enemy in life? May the Lord treat me the way I treat my enemies. May the Lord treat me the way that I treat other people. May the Lord treat me just the way that I treat everybody else that I come into contact with. Ooh, that's kind of a scary thought, isn't it? David says, may the Lord treat me the way I treated you. And Saul says to David, may you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. So David went on his way and Saul returned to his place. David allied with the Philistines. Does it say that? No, it doesn't say that. We'll say that next week. We'll see that next week. As David is going to go join the Philistine army for a little while. But it's going to be a plan that we'll watch unfold next week as we study chapter 27. Now, I want you to consider this tonight. These couple of thoughts. If you have a problem with somebody, would you please consider going to talk to that person one-on-one? Not saying they'll listen, not saying they'll respond, but make the effort to go talk to that person. And understand, or ask yourself the question, the things that I'm passionate about, the things that are moving me in my life, the things that are driving me, are they from the Lord, or am I just being stirred up by emotions or by physical? Am I being moved spiritually to do the things I'm doing? If I'm not being moved spiritually to do that, then I probably should give it up. It probably shouldn't be something I'm working on. I like David. As I always say, he's known as a man after God's own heart, but he's being, he wasn't born that way, he's becoming that way. And while we see his good and his bad, I love how the scripture presents both the good of David and also there's some bad. We saw some last week and there's a lot more to come. But there's good and bad of David. We see his heart is to serve God and to be right with God and to be obedient to God and to honor God. May that be our heart as well. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. Lord, you've, you've met us, you've, you've spoke to us. Lord, you never, never cease to meet us right where we're at. Lord, we don't have to rise up to come to you, but instead we just study your word and you'll speak to us. And Father, I just pray tonight that if there's somebody here that is having a problem with somebody, they would be moved to go talk to that person one-on-one and settle the score, settle the problem, whatever it might be. And Lord, if we find ourselves passionate or moved by something this week or even a calling that we're wondering, am I called to do this? May we, may we take the time to see if it really is a spiritual, a spiritual stirring or if it's just something where we're being stirred by emotions or opportunity. Lord, may we know that opportunity does not always mean it's your will, that just because it's in front of us, it might just be a test. Is it an opportunity or is it a test? Lord, may we pass with flying colors. May we be people who serve you, follow hard after you, and live for you every day of our life. 
not being pulled aside to the right or to the left by the things of the world, but instead our heart being focused on you. In Jesus' name, amen.